Welcome back to the Curious Climber podcast. This is Mina, and on today's episode, I'm talking to British climber Hamish MacArthur. Hamish is 20 years old, um, but has already been climbing for 15 years. Um, He started when he was five, and he's really kind of recently exploded a bit more onto the competition scene, um, becoming world youth champion in both Boulder and Lead in 2021. So Hamish is really, really psyched. He's got some big goals ahead of him. He's mainly focused on comps, but also um, got some exciting kind of projects outside. So we talk about a bunch of different things in this podcast. I really enjoyed the conversation. He's a very interesting guy with a lot of interesting and quite thoughtful perspectives on parts of his climbing and his mindset and things that he's changed in order to kind of step up his performance. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Here is Hamish MacArthur. Hello. Hello. Hey, how you doing? Yeah, all good. All good. Good. I'm I'm always awful at everything on Zoom. So (laughs) yeah, I've so many meetings and I've just not been like on mic or not be on camera so <laughs> so you've made it technically to be honest I'm the same I'm a bit of a technophobe um so the fact that I can in any way run a podcast is kind of miraculous um I had to learn a lot before starting this in terms of um you know just making the audio all right and um and we've definitely still got some progress to be made on that front um so I know how you feel I definitely yeah, turned up well, to meetings where my face doesn't show and I'm like, ah. <laughs> yeah, well, we're both here. That's important. That's <laughs> a good start, if anything. It's a good start. Yeah, we'll be winning from here on in. Um, so where are you now? Where are you, where are you based? Leeds. You're in Leeds? Yeah, in Leeds, living with Max Milne. Uh, just, yeah, just training and that's pretty much it. <laughs> just okay. living and training at the moment, yeah. Nice. So that's, are you a full-time climber then? Yeah. Yeah. The first time ever, like barely anything extra on the side is, is just focusing on climbing. So, yeah. That's cool to be able to have that level of focus. Yeah. And how old are you? For people that don't know you, I guess it would be good to know some basic kind of stats about Hamish. <laughs> so like, how old are you? How long have you been climbing? And a little bit of background to get us to where you are now. Okay. Yeah. So I am now 20, just turned 20, and I've been climbing for most of my life since I was about five is when I first went climbing. Um, the same story as so many people is that I was just the kid who climbed everything, and it was kind of my parents' way to stop me like climbing up door frames and breaking all the banisters. And like My mum would just go outside and see me dangling upside down from branches, and she was not happy about that, understandingly. Um, so she wanted to get me to to channel that like youthful energy and, and passion for something into somewhere safe where I'm not gonna, you know, end up breaking my arms or something. So, so yeah, she took me to the climbing wall while her and my dad for my birthday, for my fifth birthday. Um, I think I think you had to be eight, but they they lied about my age just to, <laughs> just to push me to to do that too. Yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty much it. I've been climbing for, like, for, what, 15 years now, which seems way longer than it is. But, but yeah, 15 years. Yeah, okay. And you, because I feel like I know your name more from competitions until recently, certainly. Um, and that's something you got into quite young, am I right? Yeah, yeah. So the competitions was kind of a natural progression. Just So I'd, I'd go climbing at five, say, I'd start there. And then every... Every month, every year, I kind of build up. So I start going once a week and then twice a week and then three times a week. And I just fall in love with it. And I just keep going and keep going. And because I'm there so much and because I just want to be climbing all the time, there's national competitions at the wall or like qualification rounds. And I didn't really know what any of it was. I was just kind of like entered into it because I was at the wall all the time and and everyone knew me there. Um, So I think at probably eight or nine, I did my first qualification round for like a national competition and I had no idea that I was actually doing like anything like that and I think I did two of the three rounds and I was like the youngest there and I qualified for the national finals (laughs) so (laughs) that was kind of the first steps into 
competition and I, I kind of fell into it honestly it wasn't like a it wasn't thoughtful in that I didn't sit down with my parents or whatever and think I want to go and, and compete I want to push myself against other people it just kind of happened and I'm competitive and I I got dragged into that world so mm. but better or worse like I, <laughs> I just kind of fell into it and, and I've and I've stayed in it for you know 10 years now yeah yeah that sounds quite similar like you say to a lot of stories of how kids get into competition in climbing and to be honest quite similar to me when I was younger um you're at the wall and it's the next thing that you do um were your parents climbers no so my mum and dad have never climbed or shown any interest in it really my mm. dad is is very outdoorsy he's a good runner like ultra runner um so I mean, I've always had kind of that connection like we, we'd go I don't know walking or running um when we were young when I was younger but neither of them climb um uh, but it's also weird because I mean you know Gilly and Charlie mm-hmm. Gilly is Gilly MacArthur my dad's cousin blood related but um, of no influence of theirs. She's married to Charlie Woodburn, who's, you know, incredible climber as well. Um, and yeah, through no like pushing from them, we both got into climbing independently, which is cool. So it must be something in the blood. I'm not sure, <laughs> yeah. what, but it just skipped a generation. Yeah, I remember actually, I think that was probably the first time I kind of heard your name actually was through Gilly, who's also been on the podcast back in, I don't have to look which episode, but quite early on, she um, came on the podcast and we chatted about all her cold water swimming stuff. But obviously she's a a prolific climber as well. Um, So yeah, that connection's cool. Um, Okay, so I kind of want to fast forward a bit now because recently you've really kind of had a bit of an explosion or to an outsider, someone that I mean, obviously, I used to be involved in the comp scene, but as of recent years, I haven't been. So when you're not super kind of watching all the different competitions and events, it's the kind of big headlines that I seem to catch and be like, oh, right, wow, what's, where's that come from? Um, and one of the things was you becoming um, world youth champion for lead and boulder in the same season. And it was suddenly like, oh, right, wow, Hamish has just done that where's that come from? And um, not to say that, you know, didn't know your name before, but it's, it was one of those standout things that was like, oh, right, we've got a youth climber here that's really kind of um, done a standout performance. So what I wanted to ask you about that is what was the build up to that? Like, did you see that coming? Was that a massive surprise to you? <clears throat> well, it's a tricky um, thing to answer because for many years, in climbing like all through youth competitions from probably 12 to 17 i go to all the youth competitions like all the european cups and and youth world championships and i would always do well but i was never a prodigy really i would be consistently making finals but i didn't make a single podium i made every single final for 10 consecutive finals but never a podium like there was some block stopping me from winning it felt like like or or ever achieving what I thought my potential was. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously that's the whole aim of competition. I can't just, you know, say, oh, I, I was, I was as good then, but I just, I just couldn't achieve my potential. Cause that's, that's the whole game is who can achieve their potential on the day. Um, so for years and years, I kind of got into this mindset of, I would go to a comp and I would do well, but not amazingly in my books. And everyone would say, oh, Hamish, you've done so well because I'm, I might get the best result on the team. Um, so everyone would be like, oh, you made another final. That's incredible. Like everyone wants to make finals. So I kind of get into this mindset where it's really hard to change something in the next competition because everyone around you is saying how well you're doing. Yeah. And you need to change something because I wanted to win. I didn't want to come fourth in every competition. So I needed to change something. But it's it's so hard to actually change something and risk coming 25th instead of four. Okay. Yeah. Even though that's, that's the thing you have to change something if you want to win. So, so when I was in that cycle, sorry, go on. When I was in that cycle, it, it was really hard to, to step back and like actually change something. But then we went into lockdown and I think that was really important for me to have a break from that scene. Like, I was just training for my own sake because there was no competitions for the next year. So if I wasn't, if I wasn't enjoying climbing, 
or training there's no like external stimuli to push me to train like i was just training for the love of it and to push myself and because that's you know something that i value is pushing yourself and exploring the limits and i think through that break it allowed me to just gain a completely new perspective on competition on life on everything and allow me to to make those changes that i needed to change without the cognitive bias of of losing something that you don't already have okay that's interesting so what did you change because it sounds like you know my thinking if you're kind of coming forth in these competitions is that maybe it's just a little tweak here and there you know like that extra one two percent um you know working on kind of you know you've got you've clearly got the bulk of what you need to make a really good performance there's probably a tweak here and there but it sounds like you're saying you wanted to pull it back to basics and make a more fundamental change um yeah. so what did, what did that look like what kind of change are we talking about so I think what you're talking about at the beginning is acquiring new skills is is taking what you already have and building on top of that is maybe if I got slightly more efficient at clipping or if I got slightly stronger forearms it might push me but for me it was all about unlearning the bad habits that I've picked up um like technically and also but mainly psychologically um like stuff in your head that that isn't helpful but it's still in your head and and it's so hard to see that it's actually there until you take a break like an example of that would be before i didn't realize this at the time but on reflection in in lockdowns when i was in my shed training i, I realized i've been climbing to not fall off instead of to get to the top okay. and when you realize that it is completely different when you go to the competition it is completely different the feeling of I'm going to try and get from the bottom to the top instead of I'm going to try and climb without making a fool of myself and falling off at the second clip because mm. then you just overgrip everything you're rigid you're not able to be fluid and express all the hours of training you put in because you're just holding on for dear life and terrified that you're going to fall off and and make a fool of yourself and people are going to talk about you oh no Hamish is he's not doing so well anymore all of this you can forget that because you're there to win the competition and have a good time and if you can have fun and you can try and do the obvious thing which is climb the route it's just so simple it's the most simple discovery but it changes absolutely everything so climbing with almost like a little bit more abandon like a little bit less fear of falling like mm -hmm. i can imagine that when you're nervous you know like I've done, certainly done it on outdoor routes, red pointing you hold on a little bit too tight you try and do everything perfectly because you don't want to mess up but then that in turn kind of means you're maybe too slow or a bit too static. You don't go for a move enough. Um, and you saying that really brings to mind climbers like Yanya and, and Andre. Adam Andre, they both um, climb with a very kind of, well, a kind of a sense of abandon. It's almost like no one's watching and they take risks which you don't see as much across the board in competitors, I think. Maybe you're seeing it more now. But is that the kind of thing you mean? Yeah, exactly. And, and it's only a risk if, if they think they're going to they're gonna fall off from doing it. It's only a risk to climb fluidly if your mind state is of not falling off. If your mind state is of getting to the top of the climb, it's not a risk because you're not, you're not worrying about falling off and you're not going to be rigid. So you're your fluidity will only help you and make you more efficient. Like having abandon is only a negative thing when you have a mindset that isn't suited to it. When you mm. have the mindset of, you know, just gripping on and doing one move, doing another move, doing another move and seeing where you get it. It doesn't work like that. You have to yeah, have a lot more freedom. Um, but the difficulty is finding that freedom. Like it doesn't just come from anywhere. Like you, you have, for me anyway, I have to have justification for that freedom. Um, like, like, how can I convince myself that that is the best perform, that's the best way for me to perform is to have fun and be free and, and enjoy it. Because, I mean, it seems too good to be true that you can perform your best when you're having a laugh and you're having fun and you're having, you know, freedom of movement and it feels great. And that's awesome when you get the best results. It, it doesn't seem right. It seems mm. like everything in sport, especially, but also society at large is, it's the more hard work you put in and like the more grit and the, the less you enjoy it in many senses, the better you'll do. But mm. I'm, 
for me, that's, that's never the way. Well, I guess what you're talking about is really focusing on the process as opposed to the outcome and having that kind of dialed in uh, process focus generally means you have a better experience. And when you have a better experience, often that ties in with a better outcome, but it's, it's where you kind of put your focus in. I mean, that's really in line with a lot of the stuff that Hazel does with her mental training is getting people to focus more on the kind of experiential part, the, the process part of their climbing and let the outcome kind of sort itself out. Um, which I can imagine is really useful in competitions because you've got all that added pressure and people watching you. Um, yeah. So is that something that just you, you were in lockdown, you were training in your shed, you said, and that did you have a kind of um, eureka moment or is it something that just you thought about a bunch during that time and gradually came to a conclusion on? I think there was a mix of both. There were definitely spikes of realization, like, um, like reading certain things, like reading certain books, articles, listening to podcasts of, of people and just having a new perspective welcomed in and instead of instead of rejecting that because it is hard to change what you thought you knew already. Like just because I had the time and I, I had no pressure on me. It was it was the least pressure I've ever felt in any walk of life at that at that time. Because I've just finished A levels, you know, I, I didn't have any more school. I didn't have any more anything. I didn't even have competitions to worry about for another year. So I basically had a year of summer with zero pressure and zero expectation. And I think that was the biggest thing for me. It was literally just a completely new perspective that I could look at things from because I didn't feel like if I changed something, I, I could experiment basically. I could try yeah. stuff out without having to worry because I do like worry about, you know, pressure and expectation and all that. That's mm. kind of something that that does occupy my mind more than I think some other competitors. But then just from having this this break from it, I could, I could, I could change the way I look at things, and now I don't see that as a bad thing anymore. Mm. And I guess as well, like, you know, I think it's it's easy to think lockdown would have been a negative thing for a lot of competitors because you're lo you're losing that opportunity to practice in events you're perhaps losing some training facilities. But I guess for you, it worked as a bit of a, a kind of clean slate and a chance to kind of refresh. And then the first events that you go back to, it's almost like on a macro scale, you've had this like deload in terms of pressure and all the stuff that comes with competitions. So were those, the world champs, with the junior world champs, were those the first competitions you did after the lockdown break? Um, no, after the break... There were I did two World Cups, which were kind of used in hindsight anyway as experiments for, mm -hmm. for pushing the boundaries of what I've just learned. So I went to Chamonix, my first World Cup, back from this whole break. Uh, and I knew that my goal was to have fun and be relaxed and be happy and enjoy it. Because if you're not enjoying it, I told myself, there's no point in being there. Like It just doesn't make sense if you're not if you're not actually enjoying it. So I knew that was, that was my goal, and I did that. I succeeded in that, but in doing that, I was a bit too relaxed. I didn't have enough of that fire and that fight that I've had in previous seasons when I was a little bit scared of falling off. Um, so then I had Briançon the next weekend, like it was two weekends in a row. And at Briançon, I, I kind of dialed it back a bit, and I made semifinals. I was like, okay, like, that's good. I think I made semis pretty high position. Um, but then I, I felt like I was in a great place. Like I, I was climbing really well. I, I didn't feel too relaxed. I didn't feel too nervous. I went out and climbed. And then I realized when I was climbing, there was, there was still like subconscious nerves there. Even though I didn't feel nervous, I was climbing as if I was nervous. So then I kind of realized like on reflection, like as soon as I get down from the wall of a, any performance really, but, but mainly one that I'm not happy with, I go straight into notes on my phone and I write down stuff that in the moment I feel like is limiting me or is holding me back. It's because that's like the, the most raw feeling of it is, is right after it's happened before other people can tell you what's happened or before you can overly rationalize it. Uh, and I realized then that, that I was just kind of tricking myself into being happy and I wasn't actually really enjoying it. I was just telling myself, I'm relaxed. I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm enjoying it. But it wasn't completely authentic it was just kind of 
I was forcing it a little bit. And I think that was why the nerves were still there under the surface. Um, so then I had a couple months off uh, just training and then Youth World Championships. And here, just from being a little bit too relaxed and then being a little bit too nervous, I was able to dial it back. And it was literally just a process of, you know, feedback from, from this competition, from this competition, how I felt. And from those, I was able to develop a mindset that works for me. And, you know, if that's keywords in my head, which sometimes I have just to keep me on track or remind me what I'm wanting to be thinking at that time or, or how I'm wanting to be feeling, then I, then I can do that and I can just refine the process and get it smoother and easier until ideally it's just, it's just intuition. I don't have to think about mm. you know, making myself into a specific state. I can just flow with the state that I'm in. But for world championships, yeah, it, it was very much just gathering results of the experiments I've been doing over the last couple of years and then putting it into practice. Okay. So as a result of that, do you feel like, <laughs> probably an unfair question, but do you feel like that's quite reproducible? Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. yeah that's I, cool. I think, it, I think it's really reproducible. And if you're looking at, maybe not results-wise, I mean, to a point results-wise, mm -hmm. but experientially, if, if you set your goal, which I have been, as having a good time as goal number one, um, because I came to the conclusion that if you make yourself have a good time and you tell yourself to just enjoy it and actually enjoy it, then the worst case scenario is you get a bad result and you enjoy it mm. instead of the worst case scenario being you get a bad result and you hate every moment of it. It just shifts the worst case scenario along. And then the best mm. case scenario, of course, is, is even better. Um, so if you set that as your goal, then no, and and I can, and it's a hard goal to do, to enjoy it when everyone's watching you and, and there's supposed to be pressure, mm. it's difficult. So for me to achieve that makes me feel genuine success. Like when I can, when I can go and uh, change completely from my mindset to this and it's working and now I'm getting results because of it. But I have to remember that the primary goal is not the result that is in the periphery and you have to look at the enjoyment of it because if you're not enjoying it there's just no point there's no yeah. point in sacrificing so many hours it's not really sacrifice but for putting so much into it and to not actually enjoy the moment it's just pointless well, it would be such a shame wouldn't it really um yeah so yeah. how do you reconcile having big big goals with trying not to care about goals <laughs> that's a question that i think Oh, I've certainly come up against in my own climbing and I've talked to a few climbers about because it's this balance, isn't it? Because if you really, really, okay, it's just about fun. It's just about enjoyment. Um, like there's got to be a balance there, hasn't there? And I've heard you in interviews say that, and we can go on to talk about this more, that you, you know, you've got your eye on the Olympics. You've got your eye on the gold medals at the Olympics. So you've got some, some big goals there. How do you not let those goals interfere with your process? <laughs> Yeah, it's a really good question and one that I've thought about a lot because it, it seems paradoxical in many ways to have this process-oriented approach and then also like really want to win the Olympics. And like, yeah. if you don't win the Olympics, you're going to be disappointed because I will be because I've set this as my goal. But the way I think about it is I think of it as the goal being a horizon in the distance that you're walking towards and you've got to set it, for me personally, I want to set this horizon as far as possible and as ambitious as possible. It's because I know that the journey to that place is going to be really interesting. And that's, that's pretty much it. I know I'm never going to reach a place where I'm suddenly going to go, oh, I've arrived, I'm happy, this is it for my life. Like, I've, I've won the Olympics. I can just retire and I'll be, like, blissful for the next 70 years. Like, that's never going to happen. And I'm aware of that. But by setting such an ambitious goal, which may or may not happen, the journey there over the next four years is going to be absolutely crazy because mm -hmm. I'm going to have to go to all these World Cups and I'm going to be going to you know, Bali and China and, and like Spain and France and, and all these places 
and I'm going to go on little adventures when I'm there and, and meet new people. And just because I've set this goal so, so far, it allows me to go on this really interesting path. Whereas if I just set my goal to, you know, get selected for this competition, then it, it doesn't, it doesn't really do much for me. Like I, if I really try and do that, then maybe I'll, I'll go to, you know, Sheffield to the team trainings and, and that'd be great. But if, if I set the, the thing as, as to go to Paris 2024 and then LA in 2028 and win there, it just makes me so much happier because I, I know that in myself that there's nothing else I'd rather be doing with my life. There's nothing else I think would make me go on more adventures and, and have more fun and meet more people and learn more about myself than just having this really ambitious, faraway goal that may or may not happen. Mm. No, that's cool. It gives you a bigger framework to work with, doesn't it? And it gives you a bigger, it's almost like it grows your capacity for, for potential experience over that timeline, um, which is cool to be open to that. And um, another question I had was, how does it fit in being kind of public about those goals? Because I feel like a lot of climbers, I think it's a certain thing in our community, maybe more so in British climbing, um, there's this whole like dark horse <laughs> mentality. And a lot of um, climbers, I feel, maybe don't, and maybe athletes in general necessarily say, this is where I want to be. Um, and because it's, you know, maybe they think it sounds arrogant or maybe, you know, to say, oh, I'm going to go and win a, a gold medal. I actually find it quite refreshing. I think it's great that you put it out there and you say, this is where I want to go. And I think I'm, you know, and in, in saying it, you're kind of saying, I know that I'm capable of this, whether or not it happens or not, it's slightly different. Um, but to say, you know, confidently, this is what I'm going to go for. I think that's really refreshing. Um, how does that feel to do? Does that add more pressure? Uh, probably. Yeah, it probably has more pressure, but I think for me, it's about accountability as well. And also, I'm, no one really cares about me other than me. In, in the, mm. like when you're honest with yourself, people don't really think about you. Everyone just thinks about themselves for the majority. I mean, you get some people who are more compassionate. But, but the person who's going to feel the most disappointment if I don't go to the Olympics is me. Like, the people around me more so, but you know, the people on Instagram or whatever who read my posts or something saying, I want to go to the Olympics for the people who listen to this podcast. They're not going to really feel it. If I don't, if I maybe have a bad season, people might go, Oh, Hamish isn't doing so well this year. Like, I wonder what that's all about, but they don't really care. It's not going to, you know, it's not going to stay with them. So I'm more doing it for myself. Like I'm saying this is, this is me and I'm being honest with my intentions. I want to do this. I'm not saying I am going to win a gold medal at the Olympics because that is different. I'm saying I want to, and I'm going to try to. Um, and it just makes me feel like I'm not hiding anything. Like this is, this is what I'm trying to do. I don't know if I have the capacity for it. I might burn out. I might get injured. Who knows? But I'm trying really hard to do that. And I'm proud that I'm, you know, able to say that. Yeah, I think that's really cool. And I think people will see that and be like, cool, that guy's like sticking his neck out and, <laughs> you know, saying, saying um, what he's going to do or what he, what he's kind of aspiring to do. And I think probably for you, it's really helpful for your confidence to be able to kind of say that out loud. And, and I totally agree with you. Like you say, you know, people don't care, you know, about, you know, as much as we think that people care about. Um, and the worst case scenario is that, you know, you, you publicly have these goals and then you don't achieve them. I've certainly done that in my climbing. I was very open about trying a hard route in the UK and I put quite a lot of time into it and then I didn't do it. And you know what? No one cared. Yeah. <laughs> well, no yeah. one cared as much as I did. And then, yeah. you know, you get to a point where you personally don't care and then you're back to basics. No one cares. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a, it's a good thing to realize, though. Even though at first it seems a bit, oh, no one actually cares that much. But it's, it gives you freedom to do what you want without as much fear of, of what other people think. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, so the results we were talking about with your World Championships, obviously they were junior events. I was interested to know, because obviously you've done quite a few senior events um, as well, how do they compare in terms of level? Um, is 
is it like an, are the routes substantially easier? Is the competition easier in terms of the other athletes there when you're in a junior or is it kind of a similar field? It's pretty similar. I'm going to be honest. Like growing up as well, people in my category, you know, Alberto is, is in my category, Luca Potikar is in my category, Colin Duffy is in my category, just to name a few, like mm. multiple World Cup finalists and Olympians and, you know, all sorts of, I've competed against from the age of 13, 14 up to now. So I think it is one of the harder categories as well at the moment there's just so much talent in the youth that going to a senior comp doesn't feel so big especially going to the world championships this year i knew where i was like i knew i'm in great shape if i'm beating these people there's nothing to say i'm not going to beat everyone at the seniors as well so okay, yeah it's cool. not as big as people may think yeah okay and what does your training look like? Um, sorry, that's quite a big question. But, you know, like <laughs> when you say you're, you're training full time, is that like six days a week, multiple sessions a day? Is that, you know, that would be what I would be guessing at. Yeah, bang on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty intense in a lot of ways and also really relaxing in a lot of ways. Like the actual hours probably aren't massive. It's probably on average four-ish, maybe five, depends if I do double sessions, hours a day. Um, but it, yeah, it, I mean, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty intense though, just cause you have to, you have to decide when to go into like savage mode where you just, you know, block out everything, put your headphones on and, and go to this really intense space to get the last rep of pull-ups done or whatever. And then sometimes you just need to be, you know, light and fun and having, having a good time and playing and like being creative. And so, yeah, it's just the most, yeah, the most difficult thing is like, I'm switching between those and not losing too much energy like in the, in the process of turning it on and turning it off. Yeah. Cause I guess if you're a hundred percent effort and well, I guess if you're a hundred percent effort and high intensity sessions all the time, you are just going to burn out. So presumably you kind of work with a coach to balance your training um, between those kind of different, those different um, sessions and I guess because you're working lead and boulder you do a mix of endurance and strength work yeah yeah and my coach I really trust like I get a training plan pretty much which is I don't know six weeks or something because we have to plan really far ahead because you can't just show up to like a lead comp after only doing bouldering like you have to like now I'm doing load of lead training even though boulder season like two weeks away um, so yeah I basically just have a lot of trust, which is great because I can, I can just follow a plan, which makes it so much easier in mm -hmm. many ways. I don't have to think about anything else. I, I just, I just do what's written down. I mean, sometimes it changes if I'm feeling too tired or I'm feeling really good or maybe at a session. Um, but yeah, like for me that, that works really well just to have, like it's down. If I just do this, that's enough. If I do anything on top of it, that's also great. Um, then yeah, that's, that's pretty mm. much it. It's just following following the structure. Yeah. And that it's going to work. Do you have a few different kind of, I guess, integrated feedback loops, either with yourself or via your coach, where, say, for example, you're trying to make that balance between pushing through, pushing through pain, and resting enough, making sure you don't overtrain. Um, do you have certain things that you monitor, like I don't know your sleep quality or um, energy levels, um, mood, things like that. Yeah. Um, I've been thinking about this a lot recently as well, because I don't really have an answer for it, unfortunately. I kind of wish I did, but it's one of the hardest questions, I think, in sport that I've experienced is when is, when is too far? Because I have a, a really good capacity to push myself through a lot of pain in training. Um, but in the past, sometimes that's that's what I mean. I've got like tweaks and, and injuries and slight little things like that. Or I've overtrained and I've, you know, become like fatigued and therefore a little bit tweaky because of that. Um, so I don't do anything measurable. I know some people do. I know some people have like watches that measure like sleep quality and, and it tells you when to, when to stop training. I know that's, that's a product that someone's designed. And it literally mm -hmm. just beeps and says, like, that's enough any more training today is not going to be beneficial. Um, 
but I don't really like that. I, don't, I, I really value my ability to push through pain and I don't want to lose that just to something completely um, te- technological and, and like it, it's, you kind of lose that, that intuition for when you should push through. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest thing for me has been developing that intuition and trusting it. Yeah. And just, yeah, really learning to trust your first instinct because I know some people um, would, would make the conclusion that they're too tired to train, they should go home and watch Netflix. But that's a really hard decision for me to make because of who I am and how competitive I am. So I know when that intuition kicks in that maybe I should stop, I should listen to that because it's, it's quite rare. And I don't want to do that. Yeah. I have the feeling of, of going home from training early because you're lazy is way worse than the feeling of burnt, like muscle, muscular burn from doing pull-ups. Mm-hmm. Um, but when that feeling comes, I know that it's time to just say, Mark, he's my coach. Like, I, I feel a little bit, a little yeah. bit tweaky or, you know, I don't think it's a good idea for me to do this. And he'll say 100% of the time when I say that, he says, okay, let's great. Go home and, have a bath <laughs> yeah because he knows you yeah and so you know i guess if that psych drops off that um that there's something real to be listening to there yeah and i think it's good i think it's you're probably right not to outsource that to too much technology um i think sometimes if you lose your way with it then the technology probably would be quite useful to kind of give you something to listen to but um i think it's great that you're learning now and in the years before now to listen um I've certainly made those mistakes in the past where, and I think I'm probably a similar, you know, personality in terms of pushing through and, um, and finding it hard to take rest. And I've definitely ignored those intuitive, like I'm actually really tired. Um, cause the site kind of pushes it, um, out the way. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I think, I think it's really good that you're, you're conscious of that and you're kind of in, integrating that at this point in your career. Cause you've got, you know, a long time ahead of you to push your body and you've only got one body um, and it, it'll, it'll give you more for longer if you, if you listen now. So that sounds really sensible. Yeah. And I, and I think through pushing yourself and actually finding a limit, which I think I have in some cases, I can think of cases in lockdown when I was training and I would, I would be doing pull-ups and like, like feeling like so ill or do whatever the exercise is and like mm. having actual tears in my eyes because I, I like I'm trying so so hard and it's you get to 100% and then and then you like a song comes on that you really gets your hype and you can just push so hard and so much further than you think and sometimes I've gone to that place where I'm like afterwards I just lie on the floor for half an hour because like it's just the most blissful experience in the world to have relief from that like physical pain <laughs> and it's one of the most amazing feelings in the world but to have been to those places you do actually really learn i think when like, you learn your limit you learn the boundary you learn what is too much and what mm-hmm. is not enough from from having you know experience of both of the extremes yeah i would yeah i i i don't want people to take away that whenever you get the instinct that you should go home or you should, you know, start walking when you're running. You should do that because you're capable of so much more than you think. And you have to find that limit and, and actually like really dig way deeper than you thought to find that limit. Um, like, I'm not even sure if I've reached it, but you know, I can't imagine going much, much harder in some training sessions than I have. Um, yeah. Through finding that limit, it, it just gives you freedom to have flexibility to make good decisions with your body. Mm. and presumably find out what's sustainable you know like that 100% effort for sure you can do that sometimes but you can't do it all the time and you start to get a gauge you know if you know where that limit is you can go right well I know where 50% of that is and I know where 80% of that is etc so you can kind of um, make sure that I guess most of the time you're not hitting that top bit and you save that for when you need it yeah that's a really good point sustainability is is everything yeah Mm. yeah yeah okay and how do you find balancing life so like things other than climbing and training with 
such a schedule with your with your training and climbing yeah yeah good question again um this is a a really hard question um because you even like saying that is making a, an assumption that and i do it myself that training is different from life like, when really it's the same it's the same thing it's it's just life is probably a, a, a not the best word for it it's kind mm-hmm. of like socializing and yeah joys of other things yeah like like I, I know people who who, sa- who use the word sacrifice and they sacrifice so much for their training like they they don't do this and they don't do that and they don't eat this and and all of that and i and i think the way around this for me because i think there might be a a solution for myself at looking at this and it's what we talked about before is that realizing that you're training not to improve your climbing but to improve your life and i think that's a really subtle change that you could make or realize or assess or whatever the word is but but realizing that being better at climbing and not happy is not preferable to being worth at climbing and happy or, or happier or, or whatever it is. And, and for someone as competitive as myself and pretty much everyone who competes, that's really hard to notice because I see people show up to competitions and they're not having a good time. Like I can tell they are you know, really anxious. And even when they do well, they're not happy. They're just living in the, the mode of, oh, I should have done this. I should have done that. Like the pressure's too much, all of this. So I think I think for me that's that's the way of looking at it is is that you've got to make sure through all means possible that what you're doing on a day-to-day basis is giving you some joy and you're not just doing it for future enjoyment when you win the Olympics or when you mm. do this. And you have to actively enjoy it and that allows you to just enjoy like the social interactions at the climbing wall or when you're training or all of the other things around winning that the lifestyle is giving you, you're able to suddenly enjoy when you are not just so focused on this one point really far in the future that may or may not happen. Mm. Um, and there is definitely a balance to be struck with going and meeting friends outside of climbing or, or like if you have the decision between doing an hour of stretching and going and playing football with some friends, sometimes going and playing football with your friends is way better for your climbing because it makes you, it gives you a better appreciation for, for life and it makes you more relaxed. And it's not all about being mechanical and, and doing all the right things that doesn't get you to the top or doesn't get you to where you want to be. And it doesn't make you enjoy the moment. I, I think that's something I've realized quite late on in climbing. I mean, mm. plenty that, that probably sounds <laughs> yeah. ridiculous. But in my like 15 years, I think the last like 18 have been I've been quite strict on myself and, and what I what I can do and what I should do as a professional athlete or as a aspiring professional athlete. And instead, if you make your own rules and, and you actually try and understand what works best for you as a person, then you don't need all that extra pressure put on yourself through doing what you think a professional athlete should do. Mm-hmm. Like I go and train and I train really hard and then sometimes I come home and I'll I don't know, do nothing for a couple hours or I'll just go and read or, you know, me and Max are going to play football or do whatever. Like, I think that's really important to remind yourself of that you don't waste eight years of your life aspiring for something and giving up everything and it doesn't even happen because that's going to happen to 99% of people. There's only going to be one Olympic champion (laughs) Uh, and so many people want to be that person. Yeah, I guess you've got to find a way so that, it, like you said, it doesn't feel like a sacrifice, um, that you can kind of in, enjoy the process and make sure that you you don't have a feeling of missing out on other areas of your life so that if it doesn't come to fruition, you don't have any regrets, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, better put than me. No, 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 I think it was good, it was good. Um, and so a little bit of a, a sidestep um, into your outdoor climbing. So we've talked mainly about all your competition stuff, um, but you've also climbed pretty hard outside. And um, so the things I'm thinking of is you, I, I read a, 
maybe it was a UKC article or maybe it was somewhere else, I can't remember, um, where they were reporting that you'd climb Jungle Speed in Spain, which is a 9A route and also an 8C plus in the same trip. And before that, your hardest red point had been 8A. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, ah, that's, I wonder if that was a shock to the system. <laughs> Suddenly being like, was that like the first time you tried harder routes and you were like, oh, I can, I can do these. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I never tried anything harder than 8A. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the 9A is, is Amoeta as well. Um, I did, it's all like slash grades. I don't really know what's going on. Oh, right. Sorry. Was, yeah. Yeah, I was I was pretty young. I was seventeen, and I went to Spain with a group of friends from Italy who I've known from competitions. And yeah, that was New Year's Day that I did that. And as a seventeen-year-old going on a holiday for the first time with friends, <laughs> I wasn't feeling the freshest. So I think that that could bump it up to a solid nine A from A to plus. Yeah. Okay, so like a slash grade but slightly hungover, you definitely get the exactly. top yeah. slash, right? Yeah. 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 Cool. Um yeah, so that was like a big step up. And so in terms of your outdoor climbing, I know you've also tried La Jura Jura, which is um ninety plus, right? Um yeah. and is that something that you want to try some more? Is that again, that's like another jump up, isn't it? Um <laughs> so you seem to have a mindset of like you know, you don't seem intimidated by this stuff, which is cool. You just want to yeah, go and have yeah. a go. Again, it's just picking the biggest conceivable challenge at the time and, and going for that. I think I could have, because, yeah, I went to try that Dura Dura. It's 90 plus. It's been unrepeated for 10 years. It was found by Andra and Sharma in 2012, and that's it. No one's done it since then. And it's probably the second hardest route in the world that's been climbed or thereabouts. And yeah, I just went to Oleana with, I hadn't climbed outdoors, I hadn't led climbed outdoors since when I was 17 and I went on that trip and did those two nine eights. Like I'm not an outdoor climber. I, I literally had not clipped a single quick draw outdoors for two or three years. Oh, wow. Um, and I think I could have gone to the crag and tried pretty much any other route and maybe done it in two and a half weeks. You know, this was like the like pinnacle of climbing at the crag and in the world pretty much. And I wanted to try to see if I could do it. And it took, it took like Sharma three years and Andre, I think like 10 or 12 weeks to do it. And I was there for two and a half weeks. And I still thought I could do it. You know, you know, when I was going there, I was like, Oh, I got this. Like, this is, this is like got me all over. I think I could, I could do something here. And I got there and it, I didn't really change until like the very end of the trip. I always thought like something could happen. Like I, I trust myself that I could do something pretty miraculous. Um, and I did end up doing the route in three parts with like 30 seconds rest or a minute rest. And so it was pretty close considering like it's, incomprehensibly hard really I, i've never tried anything that hard and i learned mm. an incredible amount because it was so difficult and it like it just speeds up the learning process when you have two and a half weeks to try this route that took chris sharma three years mm. and you've only ever climbed outdoors like lead climbing once in the past like five years on one trip and there's so much learning to be done there because, you know, I was having to skip clips and take, take massive falls and stuff. I've never done any of that before. Like, I'm, I'm used to climbing indoors where, you know, you step as a meter apart and mm. everything's safety regulated. Like, that was really hard for me. And then the, the physical, like, aspect of it is a 50-meter route. When have I ever climbed more than, like, 15 meters? Like, never. Like, mm. that's, there was just so much difference because it because it's this incredible challenge and yeah, because you of really that, I was, in the deep end there <laughs> yeah exactly i love the deep end though it forces you to like find all these subtleties and and make these big leaps in ability and confidence just because now i think i could go to any crag in the world and i would i wouldn't feel overwhelmed by anything because i've tried that i battled myself against that and i told everyone i was going to go and try it i didn't do it in secrecy like i this is my goal to go and do this route. And I didn't do it yet. I'm going to go back at some point. 
I think maybe the end of this year, but I've got so many World Cups, I might just be burnt out and just want to stay at home and chill. I can't, I can't tell yet. Um, mm. But I'm going to do it at some point. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So you definitely have, I guess, outside goals that, that fit in around your comp stuff, but the comp's the priority and you'll fit that stuff in over the years to come. But you are keen for, for outdoor stuff as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I picked the route because it was really hard, basically. Because mm-hmm. of the and that's got a bit of a stigma but it's just like a like an insight into how challenging it's going to be that's that's yeah. it's like, a, it's like oh it's, it's 90 plus it's going to be pretty impossible perfect yeah um, but i also want to go and do some like developing boulders and routes and i really like exploring and adventuring i love being outdoors and just you know running about looking for rocks to climb that hasn't changed so that's yeah. also another big ambition is I want to just find stuff and mm. go on adventures and, and find new bits of rock. Yeah. Yeah. I want to do a lot. Yeah. You've got some fun years ahead. That's cool. Um, so just briefly staying on La Jura Jura for context for people listening, I would say most of us, myself included, will never know what 90 plus feels like. Can you break it down for us? Like what, it's a 50 meter route. Can, yeah. What does that break down to um, in terms of sections um, so that people can kind of, because I think sometimes when you get into these kind of upper echelons of grades, we, we dissociate a bit. We just go, oh, right, I'm just going to label that as like really flicking hard. And mm-hmm. we, don't, uh, we don't know what, what it might kind of look like. In- yeah. Yeah. Here's, here's something funny that I read that Andra had posted about the route after he'd done it. He said the first 15 meters could be 9B slash plus. And then you've got 35 meters on top of that. Oh, right. And it's okay. Still, yeah, it's 9B plus. Um, but I think, I think the breakdown in terms of like boulder grades for the first 15 meters is like, what was it? It's like 7C, 8A, 8B, or 8B plus, I think. And then like another... AA or something they like all stacked on top of each other and that's boulder grades and that's boulder grades yeah it's like the first 50 meters is just boulder 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 with no rest really in between and like skipping clips and stuff like you know at the third clip it's terrifying i took some horrible falls i just like, i do not want to be doing this right now and it's really scary for me just to like yeah. skip clips right right at the bottom of the roof on like something that's at the limit of your climbing to do that that was hard i should probably uh speak to hazel <laughs> she's <laughs> yeah from that um yeah that's i that's pretty much it and then there's like another crux at the top and then you've done you get to a rest which they make out in the film to be amazing and it's not it's like it's pretty grim like side point it's all sweaty because it gets the sun um and then you get there and you've just done 90 plus and then you look up and you're about halfway up the route and there's another, you know, 20 meters of, of like 8B climbing to do. And I've never even done 8B. I've done 8A and 9A. I don't, I don't think I've ever done it. I, I, just, I just don't really know what any of it means. It's just really flipping hard. In some ways it must be, I'm trying to imagine going and trying something without all the kind of um, preconceptions that you have when you have more experience in some ways you know going at something like that difficult with more of a kind of beginner mindset in terms of your rock climbing experience it's probably quite liberating yeah yeah I think so you don't get sucked into the meaning of the numbers as much mm. um, you don't make your own barriers as like oh it's I can't climb maybe after doing 90 plus like, I don't know if I can I, I don't know what the grade really feels like. Mm. It's just a piece of rock to me, and it's really famous. But 90 plus is, is so abstract to me because I've never climbed anything close to it. it mm. It's kind of meaningless, other than the fact that I know it's the hardest. Mm. Yeah, yeah. No, that's cool. It's an interesting kind of um, perspective on hard climbing. <laughs> and um, what about UK rock? Have you got anything that you're psyched for in the UK, roots-wise, bouldering-wise? And not necessarily something that you're going to try anytime soon, but, you know, like, longer term, you know, over the years, you're like, oh, I want to get to this or, or that. Yeah. Yeah, bouldering-wise, yeah. 
I'm not so keen on UK roots. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> I'm not that much, but my limited experience, especially as like a kid, is just everything is completely polished and I'm terrified. <laughs> That's <laughs> one of my memory of UK climbing and I've not done much since. Um, I should probably go and change my perception. But yeah, boulder-wise, in the lakes, I've got quite a lot of projects, actually. And I got some on Yorkshire, or the Yorkshire more sandstone as something I went and cleaned up that I really wanted to do, um, which looks like like the perfect line, like massive overhang, probably like AC-ish. I haven't gone and tried it. I just went and cleaned it up. Um, but yeah, then in the lakes, there's superpowers, which is Aidan Roberts's V16, um, which I've tried. I think I've had two or maybe three sessions on, and I'm getting really close to that. But I haven't been on it for over a year now just because of pumps and all of that sort of stuff. So I might go back and do that at the end of the year. I'd really like to get back on that. It's just so much. Mm-hmm. Aiden just like gone around and opened up a whole new world pretty much. Um, yeah, there's there's so much I want to do. Yeah, I'm sure. oh, that's yeah. cool. Yeah, <laughs> a lot. I could, I could spend years and years just walking around like the lakes or Yorkshire Moors and just climbing. Like there's, there's enough rock there to fulfill me for as long as I want, I think. Nice. That's cool. Um, and massive tangent towards the end of this chat. Um, I've heard you're a good cook. Uh, where's that come from? <laughs> and what's that about? And is it true? <laughs> I like cooking. That's definitely true. Okay. Sometimes I'm a, I'm a, I'm a good cook. Um, I'm the cook of the house. I live with, yeah, I live with Matt. We moved in like a year ago and yeah, we cook together sometimes, but I just really like cooking. I don't know. My dad's a, my dad's a good cook. He always would try uh, new recipes. Like I like getting recipe books. He gives me them sometimes, which is, I don't know. I, I find it really relaxing. First of all, when I get home from training, sometimes I just want to do nothing and we just go and you know, we cook something so simple and, and we just eat it and then we eat it in silence because we're both exhausted and then we just go to <laughs> and Sometimes we like to yeah, put music on and I'll and I try out a new recipe and I just really like, just really like trying new things pretty much. I like exploring, like just seeing what other people are doing with food that I never thought about. I love food. I think everyone should. It's like the perfect, it's like guaranteed happiness. If you, if you really appreciate food. Like three if you're a good a cook. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Three times a day, you can just have a little, little nugget of joy. Like it's, yeah. I, yeah, I just find it relaxing. It takes my mind off everything else. It's, it's a process. It's meditative, I think. Like you just enjoy the cooking, enjoy the eating. And it's, it's just a nice thing to do. Yeah, nice creative outlet as well. Mm. yeah yeah and it and it's it's nice just to spend time chatting and cooking like how often do you just stand there for like an hour with a friend and just and just chat like for me it's not that often i'm usually chatting and oh i've got to go climbing or i've got to go do this but it's nice just to stand in the kitchen and and be cooking and chatting about something interesting or chatting about absolutely nothing at all and just making jokes like it's it's nice just to have like a an hour or you know an hour or two just to do absolutely nothing but what's in front of you which is really nice yeah and it brings people together i think cooking is like a really cool skill to develop when you're younger because it's a way to bring people together you can be like i'm going to cook a meal and and have people around and it's it's something um it's like a really nice way to connect um what is your favorite cuisine like if you were going to cook um from a specific part of the world or, you know, what, what would be your favorite, your go-to dish? I really like doing curries, fish curries. Okay. Oh man. Yeah. I do a good fish curry. Nice. Cool. That would be, that'd be the dinner party food or risotto. I like risotto. Then you got to buy, you got to buy wine to make a good risotto and then, you know, just racks up the cost. (laughs) (laughs) That's like a small, like a small group of friends meal that I'm cooking. Like if I have more, (laughs) Right. Yeah, a curry would be curry would be the number one choice. Nice, cool, cool. Alrighty. Well, um, thanks so much for doing this. I really enjoyed our conversation. Um, if there is there anything else that you wanted to chat about that we haven't covered? I don't think so. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's been cool. 
it's been cool and we're going to be in the same place at the end of the well at the end of april aren't we there's a yeah. arcteryx event in the lake district that we're both going to be at your new new addition to the arcteryx team which is brilliant um so it'd be cool to hang out that weekend and um and chat some more yeah so great. yeah nice one cool well nice to e-meet you and nice to have a chat and uh see you at the end of april yeah, perfect. See you soon. Cool. All right. See you soon.